Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is photographer Alana Aratom, and we have a fabulous conversation about how she left the corporate world, taught herself photography, and how that may actually have saved her life. Uh, We talk about her breakout work, The Golden Age, and the process by which anger, frustration, and responding to injustice have led her to make beautiful and important work. Uh, The Golden Age is going to be showing, or is showing, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, at the Center for Creative Photography, April 2022. I think it's through August, but I have a link in the show notes for that show. So if you're out in Arizona, you definitely want to check that out. Uh, This episode is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. And this month's selection is Keep an Eye Shut by Haneo. Uh, Keep an Eye Shut summarizes 30 years worth of activities of Japanese photographer and artist Haneo Nakajima. Since the late 1980s, Haneo has pursued a multifaceted career that encompasses the roles of geisha, model, actor, singer, and performer, in addition to her work with the camera. And I'll be doing a video preview of that on the Real Photo Show YouTube channel and Instagram. Uh, so, more about Alana. Uh, Alana was named the 2021 Silver List as one of the 47 most exciting contemporary photographers to follow. She is a 2020 San Diego Art Prize winner and recipient of the 2020 Michelle Reichman Project Grant Award. Her photographs have been exhibited at Catherine Edelman Gallery in Chicago and Art Miami with Catherine Edelman. Uh, at the San Diego Art Institute, Pentimenti Gallery in Philadelphia, Colorado Photographic Art Center in Denver, and Candela Gallery in Richmond, Virginia. Her work has been acquired for the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts Collection, and three prints from the Golden Age were recently added to the Center for Creative Photography's permanent collection. And that list continues, and you can read that in the show notes. Uh, but once again, we just have a fantastic conversation. Alana's story is so interesting. Her work is incredible, and and even with some of the difficult conversations we have about what's been going on in this country the last few years, we actually have uh, quite a bit of fun as well talking to each other. So uh, this was a joy. So thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Thanks for joining me. Hey, good morning. <laughs> Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, good morning from, you're in Arizona? I am in Tucson, right? Sunny Tucson, yeah. Gonna be 90 degrees already. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's gray in like 38 or 40 or something like that in New Jersey today, which is insane, yeah. Something is wrong <laughs> with the universe, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you and I got to work on something together, which is how we, we've come to know each other with the MFA portfolio review kind of a show and book and project dedicated to recent uh, grads and undergrads who may have missed out on some of the meet and greets and networking and shows that uh, they normally would have had if it were not for COVID. And of course, we had a a lot of help and sponsorship from Fujifilm, which was really incredible. Basically started by uh, Eric Kunzman, Booksmart Studio, but also with Donna Sterling, Yoa Friedlander, Float Photo Magazine, me at the JKC Gallery, and you, of course, uh, our West Coast uh, representative. Right. <laughs> or West Side <laughs> of the country. Yes. The West Side. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, But you had a connection with, with RIT, with Eric Kunzman beforehand? Just in sort of like a social capacity. And we hadn't really worked together. How did I meet Eric? I think I met Eric actually through Wayne, my partner, who knows oh. Eric. And Wayne's roughly connected with RIT and, you know, everybody up there with Eastman. So I think that's how I met Eric. I see. Yeah. And, and you you just so kind of told me about Wayne, Wayne Martin Belger. Yes. Who has a really interesting website. I, I suggest checking it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who just drove away on his motorcycle. Yes. Like some, like some kind of closing scene in a movie. All right, anyway. <laughs> There is a closing scene in a movie with him driving away on a motorcycle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, my 
my god. Uh, but we are here to talk about you. And uh, um, so anyway, yes, that that project went really well. It showed in the gallery. Uh, there's books still to be had. You can check it out at jkcgallery.online and MFA Photography Re- Review. I uh, I'm butchering the actual website. Uh, MFA <laughs> MFA Photography That's it. But why don't we go all the way back? Mm. Uh, because you have a, an interesting uh, entree into photography, I think, uh, because this is in some ways a, a second life for you, right? Yeah, it really is. It's so amazing um, that it happened at this sort of late stage in my <laughs> late stage. I feel like I'm 80, <laughs> but I kind of right. feel like I do. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I happened to find my way here at the age of 47. And um, it was after, my gosh, maybe over 20 years working in advertising and marketing. So oh, okay. in, a, in a corporate capacity. And I was like art adjacent. So I was like... I was going to say, right. It was, it, was it in a creative capacity <laughs> yeah, or more yeah, on the business yeah. side? I, oh, okay. Yes. You know, I, I grew up with a father who was an artist. Yeah, sort of like a frustrated artist. He worked a full-time job as well. And, you know, I think he really just was trying to impart on me the importance of having income. <laughs> mm. And uh, so he sort of steered me away from going into yes. art. And but As many it was, parents do. Many parents do. <laughs> Understandable. You know, yep. eating is a good thing. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you Not know. Living with your parents forever is also probably a good thing. And that. <laughs> and they were probably like, and you have to leave. So, <laughs> so. So, yeah, I, you know, but art was always in my in my bones, you know, and so I really tried to figure out what I could do to make an income and be creative at the same time. So I I found myself doing design work for uh, ad firms. And Mm. that's why I say it's kind of art adjacent because there was no creativity in it whatsoever. Um, You know, it's just basically executing on other people's ideas. Right, right. Did you come out of school doing that? Did you study business? I Did you sort study of. Graphic design? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So long story. My, you know, my parents are pretty old school. My mom, again, very well-meaning. You know, my dad was like, you need to get an income. My mom's like, you need, need to marry a rich man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> none of those things really worked for me. Um, <laughs> so I... Uh, I didn't get a chance to, to go to school. You know, they weren't really, they didn't have the finances to to pay for me to go. I have three brothers and they wanted the money to sort of go for, for their education. And if I were was going to go, I need to kind of figure it out by myself. So I worked a full-time job, went to a community college where I learned yeah, maybe community the college. community college. <laughs> I learned like maybe the second iteration of uh, second version of Photoshop and a mm. oh, um, wow. yeah. couple of layout tools like Quark. I think Quark was there Quark at the time. Quark yes. Express, not InDesign. There was no InDesign then. <laughs> and um, and then I just I put together a little portfolio and started shopping it around and got myself a little production job. And that's how I got into advertising and sort of just worked my way up and taught myself how to use programs along the way and kept sort of like re-educating myself on these programs. So I worked my way up from production into an art director position after many years. Um, wow. But yeah, yeah I'm largely self-taught. Like I, uh, I've kind of just developed this sensibility that like if I didn't have the means to go to school and get a degree that I would just get my own degree. And so that started me down a long line of studying on my own, all sorts of subjects. And, um, you know, I think that's why for me, the, which I'm sure we'll get into, like the lighting style for me was like, Oh yes. An yes, idea, yes. like who, if I have to learn from a teacher, you know, if I could decide which teacher I'm going to learn from, I'm going to learn from the best teachers. So I, you know, I read, books from the best people and you know if I was going to learn photography it was going to be from the best people so mm-hmm. yeah so I, I'm, I'm largely self-studied wow yeah yeah now we'll talk about that uh somewhat baroque lighting that you use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then it's it's 20 years at that job like 20 years in various different jobs I think 
you know, I always hated it. And so I kept thinking that like, if I, maybe it was the environment, maybe it was the people. So I changed jobs a lot. And I also did a lot of freelancing, which was great because it gave me the ability to work at lots of different ad firms. And I've worked at some of the biggest ad firms over on the West Coast. I worked on some really great campaigns like Taco Bell and Mercedes and Coca-Cola and Disney. So I worked with Mm -hmm. some really big brands. And so that was interesting because I got a chance to see sort of how many different industries worked. And what I took away from all of that was that it's all such crazy manipulation. And... um, (laughs) And I just didn't really want to be a part of that, like selling things that that wasn't like in line with my own integrity. Right. Like, oh, sure. That that was that was always the big question when I was a student at School of Visual Arts is would you do a campaign for cigarettes? Right. 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 Exactly. So there was a lot of that going on and um, long hours and like you'd go into these offices for a interview or, you know, you're going in there to, to freelance and they give you the tour and it's always so crazy. Like it seems like a it seems like some sort of amusement park Oh, over here is, <laughs> you know, we have five chefs to make all the food that you want. And over <laughs> here, there's a movie room where you can come on your break and watch a movie. And oh, look, over here is a nap room. And you realize you're walking through these places and you're like, this is crazy. It feels like adult Disneyland. And then you realize, <laughs> oh, it's because they never want you to leave. They never right. <laughs> want you to leave. Like uh-huh. they That's want right. the, the nap room is your overnight sleeping room. Right. So <laughs> it, it, it became this really weird place of contention with me because, uh, you know, there was a lot of work that I was working on that, that I didn't believe in. I wasn't getting vacations the way that I felt like I should. Uh, you have a two week vacation, but you can't take it all at once. You can only take like a mm. couple days at a time. Just weird oh, stuff wow. like corporate, yeah, just weird yeah. corporate stuff. Right. Yeah. So I thought I, I, I can't. This is not for me. But changing jobs and moving buildings only resulted in same thing, different place, different, different yeah. address. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. And, you know, of course, we'll get to your work, which is very much about countering stereotypes and pointing out uh, problematic spaces and, and, and histories. And knowing what I know about working in corporate culture, I did it for a very short stint printing. uh, I was a color printer for a very large, I think it was the world's largest color printer at the time. And we did a lot of cosmetic product printing and magazine printing and all that kind of stuff. And I, what I learned very quickly was that corporate culture is often very far behind social changes in terms of structure. It's very slow to change, very slow to move. Was that part of the influence of the work you do now? <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like modern day slavery. No, sh- I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Like, no, it- no. But I, 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 I only, I only chuckle because I'm being so delicate while talking about it. Just <laughs> and like, I'm just, no, I'm just, just yeah, say it. Let's I, just I say don't, it. Right. Yeah, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't parse words. Um, yeah, it really felt like that to me. Like it felt very much like there were certain people in control and you needed to fall in line and you could not stand out in any way. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, and that's just sort of like the overall corporate culture that everybody has to deal with. But then as a black woman in these spaces, you know, what I felt like a lot of times, and it started to change, you know, because again, I was doing this for 20 years. So like in the Mm -hmm. beginning, I was usually the only woman in these art rooms there. It was me and a bunch of dudes and they were all white dudes. And, um, (sighs) and so that was really uncomfortable. (laughs) Most of the time, you know, like I had to, I don't know, I guess I just had to hold back. I had to like silence myself because things were being said in those rooms that, you know, I didn't feel like it was a safe place for me to stand up and say, hey, this is, you know, inappropriate behavior. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, especially if I, you're a kind of alone, right? You're, you're, you're the one person, right? Very yeah. alone. Only woman, only black person, you know, mm. so like I'm, I'm listening to these jokes and then you just got to like knee slap oh, along yeah. with it. The like, jokes. oh, yeah, that's yeah. so ha So funny. Yeah. Love this. Yeah. Um, and that that was 
that was that happening a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And then as things started to change and I found that I wasn't the only woman in the room, maybe there was another woman there, it still felt like, okay, well, there are these other microaggressions as well, you know? So, like, I can never really find a comfortable place for me to to be within those spaces. It always felt like I was brushing up against something that felt abusive, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, had the privilege, air quotes, privilege, of, like <laughs> driving in traffic to endure my eight to 10 hours abuse every day and drive in traffic to go home, right? So like, you know, that was my life. And in the last job, in doing that, sitting in traffic, going there, suffering the abuse for eight to 10 hours, sitting in traffic again, getting home, only having enough time to maybe take a shower, eat some dinner, go to bed, get up in the morning, do it again. Like that was my life. And mm. And at the same time, so I'm, you know, I'm dealing with all this. And then externally, there's all this other stuff happening in the world, right? Police brutality. Like, it, fe it feels like black people walking around with targets on our back, you know? And so I'm ingesting all of this and not having a proper place to put it or be able to process it, really. No time to process it. And not really understanding how I'm in a I'm in these really white spaces I don't yes. have people to talk to really about this kind of stuff you know so like I felt like I was losing my mind <laughs> I did is this about 2017 then or yeah, just before it was yeah. I mean this was going on anywhere from like I think I was start it was really starting to bubble up for me a lot around like 2014 somewhere mm -hmm. between like 2010 and 20. 17, you know, was where this bubbling up started happening. And I was really starting to, you know, ask myself, like, how do I get out of here? What does life look like outside of this? And this is all that I've ever known. Because again, like I came out of high school, went into community college for like two years, and then started working. And so this is my whole life. If I yeah. were not going to do this, what was I going to do? I, I don't have a degree. Right. You know, so... So it was a really scary moment because I thought I don't, you know, if this is what my life is going to look like, then man, I'm not, I don't know. And you did it. You did it for a very long time. I did. Yeah. And I just, yeah. could, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I just couldn't, it just felt like I was young enough that I, I didn't feel like I was going to die anytime soon, <laughs> but, but old enough to, to feel like, okay, I've done this and like, I, I don't. I cannot imagine doing this anymore. And the ladder doesn't go up much further than this for me. Like once you reach your art director position, then you go into creative director. And that's a whole different thing. That's like managing business. I just wanted to make art, man. Like I just right. wanted to draw some pictures and be left alone. And so, yeah, I was really at that point questioning like, what, what now? Like what's next? And uh, so, so let's, I, let's talk I about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, I got go fired at that point. So that changed everything for me. Was there something inside you that said, I'm okay if this happens? Or was that like a truly surprising, shocking event? Okay. So this is a I'm going to get real moment. Mm -hmm. I was living in San Diego at the time and I, I knew that I needed to get another job. There was no way that I could not, you know, and so that meant that I was going to have to apply for more jobs, go and find another building, same problems, right? Mm -hmm. And that really scared me because I, again, thought I, I can't, I don't know how much more of this I can endure. And so I had a moment of reckoning where I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's going to happen here because I am either going to stress myself into a, a point of sickness slash, you know, like severe ill. I, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease during that last job because I was so stressed out. Right. Um, and so I thought this is, this is spiraling into a place like you start here, you start hearing these stories about, you know, the J Japanese culture of people working themselves to death and then they die in their cubicle. And like, I feel like that's a possibility. Like, I, I mean, I don't mean to get dark, but it got, it yeah. got real dark for me. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I really think that that, like that could happen. <laughs> like I could literally yeah. die slumped over my keyboard in somebody's you, office. And like, you felt the walls closing in. Yeah. Like, and yeah, I thought that yeah. is not a rock star way to go out. Like, I just, I can't die like that. That's terrible. Um, 
Um, mm-hmm. So what are my options? And so I started really looking at my life and asking myself some deep, hard questions like, all right, Alana, you have this vision for your life. You have this idea of who you should be, how you should be in the world. But what are you actually doing to move in that direction? Right. So I decided to commit myself to three months of doing everything that I knew that I was supposed to be doing that I made excuses for. Right. Like we all do that. Like, oh, I know I'm supposed to exercise. I'll get to it next week. I was like, no. I'm going to do this. I'm going to mm-hmm. give myself three months to do everything that I know I'm supposed to do. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get up and meditate. I'm going to write my journal. I'm going to take my camera out. I'm going to like, I'm going to do everything that I need to do for three months because at least then I know at the end of those three months, like either something is going to shift or, you know, I would have just developed some really great habits, which is, you know, either way, it's a win-win, Right. Right. Nothing bad could happen of that. And I could also make the choice at that point after those three months to go back to exactly what I knew, go back to the old devil because, you know, I can do that. So, right. So that's what I did. And after those three months, like literally everything changed. Everything Hmm. in my life changed. Everything. Priorities, figuring out that you could do these things. I I made golden (laughs) age in that three months. Wow. I had, I, I took my camera, like I knew that, I knew that using my camera gave me a sense of peace and levity and it removed all of the weird, bad feelings in my life. Like that is, that has always been true. If I engage in art, that those other things just go away temporarily, right? So mm. I took it out. I decided to take my camera out every day as a way to stave off the depression. And also because I made this commitment that like, I'm going to do this. So I had people come over to my apartment and sit in my living room every day. I just, I, I called a friend and was like, I need you to come over. And, uh, and if you have friends, tell them to come over tomorrow, you know, and I just had people come over every day and every day I took a portrait because if I committed, if I made that commitment to them, if they said, yeah, I'll come over, then I knew that like, I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't decide to do something different and make an excuse. So I, I, I tried to do these three months in a way that like was foolproof for myself. I foolproofed it. I childproofed it for me. (laughs) (laughs) I know know how I can fail in this. I'm going to just like get ahead of it, right? I want to talk about the actual project Golden Age, the actual work. Uh, And for those who are not familiar with it, go to alanaaratom.com. You can pause right now and do that. (laughs) But but then, of course, you get fired. And that must have been kind of a sign too, right? Yeah. Um, That must have helped you, yeah, really seal the deal on that decision. Well... Yeah, I mean, I was used to leaving jobs. I was, I felt like I was mm-hmm. leaving jobs every year, or every couple of years, or something. And so, um, it it didn't necessarily occur to me that that all of this was going to happen. It was not on my radar at all. I only took the camera out because I knew that if I, every time that I was clicking the shutter, I wasn't depressed. That was the mm. only reason why I was doing it. I I didn't set out to make a, a photo pro. I didn't even know what a photo project was. I I honestly, like all of this was so foreign. It felt like I was completely plucked out of my life and placed into somebody else's life. No, it's kind of incredible because Golden Age was like a breakout body of work for you that got shown, that you had talks about. And also, your I, w- I don't know if I would call it your first serious foray into photography because you had work before then. You but But I think what's amazing is this is the work that comes about after you're teaching yourself everything, right? Yeah. You're teaching yourself photography and lighting and, and looking for the, the great uh, sort of books and everything that you can learn from. And, and <laughs> this is the work that comes out of that. It, it happens in this, this period where you're going through this life-changing three months of you know, reprioritizing everything in your world. Uh, and so it, it's, it's really amazing that this is that body of work and it, and it's the work that sort of, you know, that everybody comes to know you by, right? Yeah. It's, it's really shocking. Like I'm still, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like, what? Yeah. It, it, it feels like, and has always felt like such a gift. It has felt like otherworldly to me. 
It's hard for me to talk about sometimes because I really don't fully understand it myself. And I, I feel like when I really am honest about it in, in speaking about it, that it sounds, I sound crazy. <laughs> really? Like yeah. it, it felt like it came from someplace else. And, um, and I am not this overly spiritual religious mm-hmm. person at all, at, at, like at all. So I think that's why I'm wrestling with it or struggling with it a little bit. Maybe somebody that has a little more attachment to those types of beliefs can look at something like Would this. Would see some kind of divine providence in all yeah. of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I can't really fully explain it. I just know that while I was working on this, it felt to me like I was supposed to stay out of the way. Mm. Okay, so like... I'm draping these fabrics like I have a Rubbermaid bin of fabrics. And so, you know, these people are coming over and they're sitting and I'm like, I don't know what to do with them. I don't know. Their street clothes are terrible. Let's just see what (laughs) I've got this fabric. Let's just drape this fabric on them. And like I would put this fabric on them and it they just transformed. And um, I didn't really do a lot of posing with them. I just that's amazing to hear. Yeah, I allowed them. I just allowed them to to just be. And mm. my job was to just watch and press the button. <laughs> it it um, really speaks to the idea of staging because you have the light and the background and the, the clothing and the props and people sort of fell into character in some ways. They just fell into character. Like I mm. set up the lights. I And, and it was all very intu- intuitive because, again, like it, it wasn't like I set out to create a body of work. I didn't even know what that was. I was just making photos and I made one and I liked the way that it looked. And so I just kept trying to mimic that one that I made. And um, so the lighting became relatively consistent. You know, if I were to go back and do it now with a different brain, it would look (laughs) totally different. But like I was just doing what I was being guided to do. So just keep setting the light up like this. Okay. So every time somebody would come in, I would reset the lights up similar to what I did last time. I would drape the fabric. If it didn't feel right, I would redrape it. If it didn't feel right, I would redrape it. I would just redrape it until it felt right. There was a one of the sitters came in and I was draping. I had this lace and I was draping it on her and she just kept feeling like there was this like a uh, spiritual sort of religious sort of tone to this to this photo mm-hmm. and I was like no I don't want that but every time I draped the fabric like that's what kept coming out and I kept <laughs> trying to push it in another direction and it kept coming out it's like she kept looking like a nun or like some <laughs> I think I'm looking at, I might be looking at the photos at the doily lace yes, kind of yes, drapery yeah. yes yes yeah. yeah and so I didn't I was like fine I mean, it doesn't matter what I'm doing here. Like, it just keeps coming back to this look. Yeah, she looks like a Madonna. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I guess that's what that's supposed to be. So we just left it. And and then it fit in. And I realized that, you know, as I'm naming these these portraits that, you know, I realized at this point there was a whole story that that, that unfolded before my eyes. And Mm -hmm. I was so shocked. Like every day I was working on this and every day it was like I was getting more information and I would work on another portrait and like a little bit more information would come out. And so when I did hers, I realized, oh, she's the she's that church in Harlem. Mm. So, I mean, like I just learned to stay completely out of the way. And even now when I'm taking when I'm making portraits like I or or any work, like I try to tap into whatever that that energy is, that thing is. Because I feel like I am working in collaboration with whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, that that's an uh, it's an amazing philosophy. The idea of staying out of the way because you know you're not specifically religious in any kind of way, but that is a, a very spiritual kind of way of working. It's it's allowing the energy in the room to to guide you in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the you mentioned the names. What are the names? There are there are saints. Yeah. They come from where? So. The lighting, I realized, you know, I'm I'm heavily influenced by 
these Renaissance paintings that I would sit and look at as a kid yes. in the museums. And that, you know, that was interesting to me because as I'm working on this project and realizing that, oh, we, you know, as black people, we were not really represented in these art spaces. So like, what is art? And what I knew to be art growing up, and I think that what the lay person knows to be art is something that like that is, is you know, like you oh. can show somebody a Rembrandt and they would say that's art. Sure. Here, here in, in the U.S. And, and in most Western culture, I think the, the first exposure to art is the, the classics. Right. The, literally called the masters, the, the white artists. Right? right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing in itself. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, so I thought, well, this is this is a perfect reference to this, and like, who who would get their portraits painted back then? And it was always the nobility and the the clergy, you know, people with uh, high status. And so, I wanted to elevate these sitters to that level, that status. And so, I named them saints to sort of connect back into that. And then I also gave them the name of a either a landmark or a street in Harlem, New York, because again, as I'm working on this, all this information's unfolded. And I'm, you know, I'm now researching Dutch Renaissance paintings and like that whole time period. Yes. And I realized like that That's what I saw. I saw the Dutch Baroque, the Dutch Renaissance. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And so that was this like blossoming of art that happened right after the 80 years war. And, and I was thinking like, well, like our, as black, you know, African Americans here, like our blossoming of creativity really happened after the migration North and, um, at Jim Crow. Right. And so, you know, all of the stuff is happening out of, out of these times of turmoil and um, and so I wanted to anchor in the names into Harlem, which is ironically Harlem with one A versus Harlem with two A's in the Netherlands, where mm. that Renaissance took place. So now we have these two Harlems, right? And so I was like, this our Harlem is actually, you know, here we are again with this erasure of history, this this uh, revision of history, because Harlem is is falling into gentrification. So a lot of these landmarks are going away and like, how can I anchor this in? And so that's why I felt like it was important to name these portraits after those places as a way to pay homage to our history. And actually the, the kind of elegance and pride and stature in these in these portraits, it actually makes me think of James Van Der Zee's Harlem portraits mm -hmm. as well, right. which is a this great connection because it's it is remembering that Harlem Harlem isn't great now because there's uh, so much money coming in and gentrification. Harlem was always great. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned James Randersey because I, I have such a connection to studio portraiture, you know, which was interesting because after I made gold, like right after I made Golden Age, and now I'm sitting with all these portraits, and I'm like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do I do with all this stuff? I mean, who wants a picture of somebody on their wall, you know? Um, <laughs> that's weird. And so I didn't know what to, to do with all this stuff, and I really loved the work, but I thought, no one's going to buy it. Like, nobody... <laughs> nobody wants a portrait on their wall. <laughs> somebody they don't know, right? But... I couldn't see myself doing anything but portraiture and I can't see myself really, I mean, I, I do, I go out and I take photos for fun in other ways, but like working in the studio for me, I think is always going to be a baseline for me. And you're doing still life now as well. And there's a, a other work that we're, we'll get to, but this, I think, uh, claiming this style and decolonizing art, right? I, that runs through all the work you do, basically, mm -hmm. yes? Mm-hmm, yeah, like I really, I'm really uh, finding it important. Like it feels like a part of my purpose. Mm-hmm. It feels like something that I'm supposed to be doing, which is taking these truths and, you know, our, uh, you know, as we as we watch our history continue to just erode and erode and go away and even now they're pulling books out of libraries about Rosa Parks and Maya Angelou oh. like what it's crazy to me so but this has been going on forever and so these truths and these these 
our histories keep getting uprooted. It's almost like this visual I have in my head of somebody walking around and just pulling, you know, flowers out of the ground. And my job is walking back behind them and sticking them back into the ground. Like I am insistent that we look at our history. It just feels so crazy to me that we live in in a country that just wants to pretend like this stuff didn't exist. Yeah, well... Nuts! You said it's been going on forever, of course. Forever. Of course forever. But what what's happened, of course, is Trump pulled the sewer lid off the... <laughs> Off the the sewer hole, and uh, you know this this fear and rage of white power and white replacement and everything else is just pouring out right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, right. And um, and you know, and all of this work came during that time that that this idiot, you know, found himself in the White House. So, mm-hmm. and then I don't know how glued to the. TV or radio or phone you were during the Kentaji Brown Jackson's hearings, but I, you know, I, I watched in horror at the things that a woman and a black woman uh, had to answer for mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because of who she was. Yeah. 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 None of it is surprising anymore. It's just mm-hmm. exhausting, really. But it may not make any difference and people may not care at all. But it feels like something that I have to do for myself. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just a form of torture. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but like, just to just to like make sure, in my own way, whatever way that I can, to make sure that our histories don't go completely away. To me, mm-hmm. it just feels like an important thing that I do in my life. You know, there's a, a level of activism to your work. And a level of social documentary to your work. And it's done in very poignant ways, but also in very beautiful and suggestive ways at the same time. I mean, there's incredible beauty in your work that can sometimes make you forget that you're talking about terrible things, right? (laughs) (laughs) But in a way, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean in a way that, oh, yeah, that's why I'm looking at this work, right? Mm-hmm. I think it actually helps it sink in a bit I think more. so, too. I think the yeah. best way to <laughs> take medicine is <laughs> to <right>. taste good. <laughs> it's got to taste good. And, you yeah. know, I'm looking, I'm looking at your, your two most recent bodies of work, Ghosts and Colonized Foods. And, and even in, in White Privilege and Make a Country, I think it's, it's all there. But tell me if this rings true or not. I feel like you're, you're even more in your kind of wheelhouse and and craft with this these bodies of work. You think so? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I, I'm just the, the the description alone is is incredible, is gorgeous. I mean, uh, I can't get over how how beautiful they are to look at. Thank you. And then and then I have to think about what I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's the point. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think I think I'm really coming into this place of understanding, maybe starting to understand what it is that I'm really trying to say and the best approaches on how to say them. I mean, I really think that the best way to engage people is not by hitting them over the head with something like white privilege. Um, <laughs> white privilege, the, the, the decapitated heads, pigs mm. on the American flag yeah. and all. Yes, that that is on the nose. I was angry. George <laughs> Floyd was murdered. And yes. I was, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on then. This was yeah. during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, so we were locked in, not knowing... What, what was happening outside. I mean, I think this mm-hmm. was like at the height of it. And and at the same time, like Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, mm-hmm. and then George Floyd happened, you know, consecutively. And, and so with everything going on and being locked in, and also I was really new here to Tucson, so I didn't have a community. I felt really isolated. And I think that that was a translation of my fear and my anger. And then within my photo community, you know, I was being tokenized a lot at that time. You know, it's like right after George Floyd, suddenly 
all of the institutions and everybody's putting out yes. their messages of solidarity, right? And so suddenly it's like, oh, well, let's call the one black yeah. photographer that we know who's kind of nice. And so they call me to go and do a talk or like, you know, and so I was just getting more and more aggravated <laughs> by all of it. And, and so I was like, let me just show you how I'm feeling about yeah. all this and what it feels like to be somebody like me right now. Like, and I really wanted to print these things the size of a room that people had mm. to walk into. And I really wish I could have pumped in the smell because right. like, I just really wanted people to understand how gross and disgusting it is that they get to walk around with these privileges while the rest of us have to mop up after it. Like, it's just, uh, I was mad. <laughs> and also, if you make, if you make work like this... You also get to see um, who's still going to invite me to speak, yeah, right? right? Like, I dare mm -hmm. you now. I dare mm -hmm. you now to come ask me to speak. Do it. Right? Do yeah. it. <laughs> 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 and and actually, you um, you just reminded me, and it, it came up earlier. I forgot to mention you were in a group show with India Beale. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. India was on the show. Listen, yes. Uh, I love India. I, it, yes. She's amazing. And um, Absolutely. yeah, when I met her, I had stars in my eyes. But her work is very much the world you came out of. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. was just like, who is this phenomenal <laughs> being? Um, and it was all so new. And I was still really shell shocked by the plucking of, you know, putting me suddenly I'm, I'm in this this photo world, right? Because... Golden Age happened really fast, like really mm -hmm. fast. How So like after I did this and now I'm sitting with these 10 portraits, I'm looking at them on my computer. I'm like, well, what do I do with this? And then I started doing some research and like maybe I can submit them to a magazine or something. Mm -hmm. And so um, I found Humble Arts. I just stumbled upon Humble Arts <laughs> Foundation. and uh, um, Humble Arts. We love Humble Arts. Yeah. Yes. And then I emailed John Feinstein and Rula. Mm-hmm. Rula Cycli. Yes. And I sent it to them. And I swear, like within a half hour, one <laughs> of them wrote me back and was like, this is amazing. Let's uh, let's let's do an interview. And so Rula called me. We did an interview. I had no idea. I, I should go back and read that interview at some point because I'm like, <laughs> I'm sure I had no idea what I was talking about. And then not that long after it came out, John called me and he's like, hey, I was up in somewhere in New York and ran into Catherine Edelman, and she was asking about your work. Is it okay if I put you in touch? And I'm like, I don't know who this Catherine person is, but sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so Catherine invited me to show the work in Chicago with Andy Abiel, and I didn't know what any of this meant. I, right, there was right. somebody along the way that was like, you're showing your work at Catherine Edelman? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I don't, who is, is she? <laughs> is that a good thing? <laughs> so it all happened really, really fast. And, um, you know, just miraculously. And yeah, I got to show with India on like the second time I ever had ever shown this work in public <laughs> ever. No, there it is. There's that providence again. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, how is uh, Golden Age not a book yet? <laughs> um, yeah, the book thing. I'm still, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I understand the, the significance of the book and <laughs> um, the importance of having a book and mm -hmm. what a book means to a photographer. Like, I get that sort of, but... Um, I guess there's this part of me that feels like I'm still not ready for that yet. Oh, um, that, but yeah, I, I get that completely. Yeah. Completely. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Don't, and yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've been talking to people about mm -hmm. books and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. How do you know when you're ready for a book? Do you have a book? <laughs> I, so no, but uh -huh. not for lack of trying, I have to say. Uh, and, and I did wait 30 years. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah. And I, I have... A few book dummies that were so close to being printed, so very close, uh, and then things kind of fell through, uh, stuff like that. But, I mean, I, I do love books. Uh, you can see behind me. Um, yeah. And, uh, and but but I I completely understand. I mean, it's not it, it doesn't it doesn't mean probably what a lot of people think it means. Meaning, you know, like 
it's like having a show and having a book and you know successes for artists are are fleeting because you've got to move on to the next thing yeah right? yeah it's it's swim or die right yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's great and in the moment it's great and then you got to move on so you know uh, yeah I don't, I don't, it doesn't it's not the pinnacle of anyone's career right yeah, uh, yeah. doing the work is the, doing the work is what matters yeah listen you know all of this stuff is so awesome and I don't, I'm not at all, like I, I love showing the work. I love talking about the work. Um, mm-hmm. But really, I just, I just want to make photos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I would be totally happy if I just, if I just made photos. Like th- somebody was asking me the other day, like, well, what is your, like, what does your day look like? And I'm like, well, you know, I definitely go by this 80-20 rule. Like I believe, <laughs> I believe in the 80-20 <laughs> rule. And my days normally are 80% sitting on the computer, mm-hmm. organizing things, uh, you know, doing admin type stuff and 20% taking photos if I'm lucky. Like if, if I'm lucky, right. I'll make a photo. Um <laughs> And that, and, that, and that like very rarely happened. Like I very rarely am able to get in the studio and do the work that I want to do because I've got all this other stuff. So yeah, yeah, like books and all that kind of stuff are great. But really where my mind is at is like, I just have all these ideas. I just want to go and photograph and um, all this other stuff is just distraction for me. Like it's getting in the <laughs> yeah. way of me making photos. <laughs> yes. So something I forgot to ask you, uh, earlier, but I th- and you mentioned it just recently again. How did you end up in Tucson, Arizona? Uh, well, you know, I was living in San Diego. Why did I think you started out uh, west East Coast? I'm from the East Coast. I'm from oh, New- you did. I'm from New York. You're from Queens, right? I'm from Queens. I'm from that's Ke- right. Okay. Cambria yeah. Heights. <laughs> yeah. So that so work must have taken you out west. Well, no, actually, um, my parents. So I left New York. When, when I was like eight or 10 or something like that, my, oh, okay. my, my dad worked for American Airlines and he got to transfer oh. down to Dallas. So I actually grew up partially in Dallas. I hated it. Um, mm-hmm. So every summer when school would let out, I would go straight back to New York. So I'd spend my summers up in New York. Oh. And um, so as far as I was concerned... And still to this day, I am a New Yorker. No one's ever going to take that away from me, period. I don't care where I live. <laughs> no, that's true. In, in my soul, I'm a New Yorker. I mean, I think yeah. that when you're born there, you just like, I don't know. <laughs> you just carry that with you. Um, I still talk with my hands. Wayne's that's like, right. why do you do that? I'm like, it's just a thing. It's like, I'm not angry. Uh, why do it's I do like, what? <laughs> what? 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 And what? Yes, making big hand gestures now. Yes. Big hands. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just made my way west because I thought I knew for sure I wasn't going to stay in Dallas. No, no, mm-hmm. no offense to any Texans out there or, or, or maybe I don't know. But um, <laughs> it just wasn't for me. Let's just mm-hmm. say it wasn't for me. Yeah, I made my way west. So I was in San Diego and, um, you know, oh, my God, the prices were in- incredible. So so now like. I don't have a corporate job. I'm now a working yeah. artist. I have this this small sort of like studio place, which was really awesome because I can kind of see the water from my from my mm. big ass windows in my in my studio. But they were raising my rent, and I couldn't afford it. And I, the art was starting to encroach upon me, like mm-hmm. <laughs> in this, yeah, it's like this collapse one, on you and kill yes, you. <laughs> yeah, this one little room. I was like, I have no room to live anymore. And so um, I knew I was going to have to move and I wasn't really sure where to go. Um, I had been long distance dating with Wayne. And so he's like, you know, you should, you should come to Tucson, check it out. And I was really resistant. I was like, I don't know about this hot ass dry (laughs) (laughs) desert place, but, but, you know, I came out here, he has this beautiful 4,200 square foot warehouse. Oh, wow. Um, we have a, we have well, he, a work He does room. a lot of fabrication, right? He does a lot of fabrication. So yeah. we have a whole work room with uh, metalworking stuff, mm. lathes and mills and big saws and welding machines. And um, we have a massive dark room with everything that you could possibly ever imagine. Dry heat presses oh, okay. and light boxes <laughs> and, and largers and everything. And so this was like, 
duh. I mean, like, yeah. Why wouldn't I come here? I can I'm sure you it. saw it and thought, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Like this, this is what I need what to do. And it really about? has expanded what I can possibly do with my, with my work. Cause there was a lot of limitations working in a tiny little room of an apartment building, right. Uh-huh. Versus a warehouse that you can get oh, dirty. Yeah. You can like, you know, make big things. So yeah, it's really, it's really helped with the practice. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're, we're wrapping up here. Did I miss anything? Is there um, <laughs> something coming up? Something, uh, shows, yeah, things like there, that? There is a show coming up. So I have a, right. a solo exhibition with CCP that opens April 16th. Oh, wow. And it'll be up until October 29th or something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, end of October. So, yeah, very excited about that. It's... Uh, yeah, it's all going to be Golden Age, and um, I've, I get two galleries. They're going to be oh, spread out so that they're contemplative. There's going to be lots of programming around that happening in the fall. Is and CCP in your neighborhood? Yeah, CCP is right over here. Oh, okay. Next to the, uh, it's part of the U of A. Oh, okay. Center for Creative Photography. Yeah, right. Center for oh, Creative right. Photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I imagine there'll be uh, talks and all those things. Oh, yeah. Lots of talks. Virtual um, connections, hopefully. Maybe. I'm not sure what they're going to be doing virtually. I know that we're probably going to record some things. We have a couple mm-hmm. of conversations, like sit-down conversations that we're going to do. A lot of the programming is going to happen in the fall when school is back in. What happens here in Tucson in the summer is a lot of people go away because it's too hot and they can't oh, handle yeah. it. <laughs> they're just not strong enough. Um, so they go and it just kind of, the town sort of empties out. So things go a little quiet here in the summer, Mm -hmm. but in the fall when all the students are back and it's a little bit cooler, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. So that's great. Excited about that. Any plans to, uh, come out East? Yeah, actually I'm supposed to be up in Boston in June, I believe, Hmm. um, with the Griffin, Griffin Museum. And then oh, um, I might be heading to New York at some point. Yeah, I, I find my way over to the East Coast quite a bit, actually. So I have to stop <laughs> well, in and keep, say hi. because Keep me posted, yes. Yeah, yeah, we haven't met in person. So <laughs> no, you, you I should know. do that. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, you have uh, such an amazing story and, and <laughs> the work is just so incredible meaningful and beautiful uh, the best you. of both worlds yeah yeah thank you so thank you very much uh thank you michael <laughs> yep and then uh, yes we have to figure out how to get together by the way i'm, I'm itching to come out west to oh my visit gosh a nice a nice hot dry climate by the way <laughs> you're strong enough you can handle it in the summer that's right <laughs> all right yeah. i'll let you know what i do yes please yes please <laughs> all right bye everyone bye Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.